The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, um, turn in, the, to, in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, and I have a couple of announcements before they turn the lights on. First, I want to share this with you. I told you guys last week while we were here, um, the church in Uganda, which we had the privilege of being able to, um, to, to kind of, uh, really, we, we did love offerings together. We, we all pitched in together and were able to buy them a piece of property and build them a building over there. And last week, they had their first service in their brand new building. And I actually have some images. Can we throw those up real quick? This is awesome. Now, look, you guys got to understand, this church has probably never, other than maybe when we would come and visit because word gets out, the white people are here, and so it gets big services then, you know what I mean? But usually services there are like 50 to 60 people, something like that. Their first service now in this new neighborhood had over 150 people at their service, which they've never had before. Um, And so we even sent some money to them this week. They went and bought 100 new chairs, and the place is already packed out. Is that not fantastic? So now let's clap. Amen to that, yeah? Just, uh, you can just see, just there's the new chairs that they put in, and they're just packing everything out, and uh, it's just such a blessing to be a part of what God's doing over there. Thank you guys so much for your participation in that, and let's just continue to pray for our brothers and sisters overseas. They truly are our family, and we're blessed to be linked with them. Um, one other announcement, next Saturday, March 14th at 9 a.m. at The Hub, the office building right over here next door, we're going to be doing a new to Heritage breakfast. Um, we do try to do these every so often, um, quarterly or maybe three times a year, something like that, um, to give opportunity for those of you that are new here to be able to come meet with me and the other pastors, get to hear some of our story, um, some of the core values of the church, what makes Heritage unique, the things that we hold to, give you opportunity to ask questions, and then find ways to help you guys plug in and integrate into the body here. We believe that's really, really important. Um, So we really want to give you guys opportunity for that. So that will be this coming Saturday, 9 a.m. over there. And new to Heritage doesn't mean only a month. Like if you've never been, if we've never got a chance to talk with you, I don't care how long you've been here, just come on out, enjoy breakfast with us, let's get to know each other, and that'll be a great time. That is this coming Saturday at 9 a.m. But now we're going to be in the book of Galatians. So if you'll turn to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 10. No, that is the right passcode. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. My iPad wasn't cooperating. All righty. We're going to be in Galatians 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14 together this morning. And uh, so I'm going to read these out, and then I'm going to open us up in prayer, and uh, then we're going to get going. Galatians 3, verse 10 says this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this beautiful day. 
for the incredible warmth and sunshine and the privilege of being able to live in such a beautiful area. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together here, Lord, the redeemed people of God, and be able to open your word and hear what your word has for us this morning. God, I pray particular blessing, Lord, on our men that are gone this week for the man camp that's been taking place this weekend, Lord, as they'll be traveling back home soon. I pray, God, you would just bless them with mercy as they travel back, bring them home safely. I pray, God, changed. Lord, desiring to follow you to a greater degree, leading families and leading others more than they ever have, all by your grace, of course. I pray, God, for our children's ministry right now as they're learning of you. May you anoint the teachers and the helpers in that room, God. May everything done there be glorifying to you. May these kids realize that they're not following some moral code or a philosophy, but Lord, may they enter into real and genuine relationships with you. And I pray in here, Lord, that you would even guard your people from words that might come from my mouth that are not intended by you. Lord, for thoughts, from thoughts of men, Lord, from philosophies or religion or ideas that aren't reflective of your heart, but God, may your spirit teach us this morning. May you be exalted. May we see you for who you are and your gospel for what it is to a new degree this morning. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, our King, our Rock, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Galatians chapter 3. Now, we're at about the halfway point at this point going through the book of Galatians. And uh, I don't know if you've picked up on this yet or not, but there is a Groundhog Day quality to the book of Galatians. You guys know what I mean? Bill Murray, Groundhog Day, over and over and over, same thing seems to happen again and again and again. That kind of happens in the book of Galatians. It's one theme, one argument presented over and over and over from different angles with different examples, different ways of presenting it, but the theme that happens over and over through the book of Galatians is that we are justified before God, we are saved by God, by faith, not by works. That we are justified by faith, not by the works that we do. Paul had come into Galatia and had founded all of these churches in the Galatian area on a bedrock principle, the basis of the church. That really you can go all the way back even to Peter and his conversation with Jesus to find this foundation. You guys remember? Jesus says to Peter, who do people say that I am? And he says, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Moses. Yeah, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. And Jesus responds to him and tells him that this is something that the Spirit had revealed to him and that on this foundation, he would build his church and the very gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. And what he means is not like Peter's good idea or like some people would believe Peter's the first pope and that's what Jesus was talking about. But what he meant was on the bedrock foundational principle that I am Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Messiah and the Savior, that will be the basis. Not on Moses, which is the law, the Old Testament teachings, the works that need to be done. Not on Elijah, miracles and incredible works of the Spirit, but on the reality that I am the Son of God, the Savior that has come to you. That is the foundation for my church. And so Paul's gone into Galatia, and this is what he's built his church on throughout all of these areas. But the problem is, is now, as happens in a lot of his churches, it seems, a group of men have come in behind him, referred to as the Judaizers, these are Jewish converts who still hold to the Jewish traditions, and, and they're coming in, they're like, look, we love Paul too, guy's awesome, but he doesn't understand everything, 
in some degrees, he's even new to some of this. You guys know that. And how much can we really try? I mean, the guy was killing Christians while we were preaching the gospel. So, so let me tell you, here's the reality. It's not that simple. It's not just salvation by faith. It's not quite that easy. Now, we need Jesus, and we need his redemptive work. We need salvation and grace, but we also need this other stuff. And they go into all the works of the law. And their teaching is that if you want to be able to stand before God and be accepted by God, loved by God, approved of by God, and saved by God, then you need Jesus' grace and these things. It's Jesus plus all of these, we'll call them gospel add-ons. And and this has been something that has happened throughout the history of the church, not just in Galatia. Throughout history, people have taken the gospel message and tried to add things on, whether it be full-on cults, or whether you think of things like even the Catholic Church with penances and, and confessions and all these sorts of things, or, or even in our own Protestant denominations when people have taken legalistic attitudes towards the gospel and continued to add things on. Yes, we're saved by grace, but you also better do this, 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 this. Be good for goodness sake. It's kind of a Santa Claus approach to Christianity. He's watching. This is what I grew up with. He loves us. He saves us by grace, but he's watching you. And if you want approval before God, then you need to do this, 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 this. And, and Paul is saying this is not true. Paul says in Galatians 1.8, if anyone preaches a gospel different than the one that I'm giving you, he's cursed. I don't care if it's an angel from heaven, he is cursed if he's adding anything to what I'm talking about. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 16, he just lays it out. We are not justified by our works, Period. Our approval or standing before God is not determined by how we behave or what laws we keep or what we do. It's just plain old isn't, has nothing to do with that. And this is the argument Paul's doing. And this argument destroys every religion that has ever existed. Because whether you're talking Buddhism or Islam or anything, Judaism, all of these religions are all built upon here's how man achieves status with God, how man works his way up to favor with God. And Paul's saying, no, it's none of that. The gospel is about how God has come down to man. We received it. We did not earn it. You guys tracking with me on this? This is Paul's message over and over and over and over and over. And, and really, you shouldn't be able to teach anything in any of the Bible without that same message over and over and over. This is God's revelation of his grace to us. And so Paul's doing this. And in chapter 3 in particular, he lays out three proofs to these people that back what he's teaching. And he starts off, we saw last week, with their conversion. He says, look, remember, go back to the day that you were saved. What did you do to earn it? I mean, you were in a sanctuary, if you will, and you heard the gospel preached. Did you go do a bunch of good works so that then you earned salvation, came forward, and then the pastor prayed with you? Or did you just receive the grace of God in spite of the things that you've done? Of course, you just received it. And then he goes on and he talks about Abraham. He, he dealt with Abraham's life and Abraham's own conversion and acceptance before God. And it, look, if you're going to argue, like let's say with a Methodist, you better be able to quote John Wesley. And if you're going to argue, let's say, with a Calvinist, you better be able to quote and understand the teachings of John Calvin. A Lutheran, you better know Luther. And if you're going to talk to a Jew, you better have some stuff about Abraham, because this is the father of their faith. This is their forefather. This is the man through whom all the original promises for the entire nation of Israel came to. This man is revered. And so Paul brings up Abraham, and he says, hey, when was Abraham justified? 
It wasn't when he was obedient. He was obedient here, and he was also a train wreck over here. But the scriptures tell us when God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham simply believed in the promise, God granted him righteousness for his belief, for his faith in God, not for the works that he did. And now today, Paul's going to bring up the last one, and he's going to deal with the law. This idea of the law. What is with this law? If it's never going to save us, why did God give it in the first place? If we're cursed under it, if it just points out all the things we've done wrong, I mean, really, what's the point of all of this in the first place? And in chapter, excuse me, in verses 10 through 14 here, Paul actually just lets the law speak for itself. I mean, remember, the Old Testament is what the Jews of that day and of our day still revere and hold to. So he's going to go, okay, if you think the Old Testament teaches that you have to live this way in order for God to approve of you, then let's just let the law speak for itself. Let's just see what the law has to say. And so this is what Paul's going to do. And he starts in verse 10 and says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things, all the things that are written in the book of law and do them. He comes right out and he says, all who rely on the law are under a curse. That's a heavy statement to a Jewish listener in this day. Their whole lives have been dedicated to this. And he just said, this law that you live under and that you are using to earn favor with God, all these rules you think you have to follow so that God will love you and approve of you, if you're under that, guess what? You're not blessed. You think you're blessed and you're looking to Father Abraham and saying, blessed are you, but in reality, you are cursed. All of you. That's a We can't even fathom what a huge statement that is in that day. And you'd think, how can that be? I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing better than most. I'm living a certain way. And he says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by most of these things. No. He says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by what? Say it with me. All of these things. This is important. If you're going to live by the law, and if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to use the law of God to gain my approval before God, Paul's saying, all right, then you're all in. You have to keep them all. It's kind of like telephones. Now, young people, you're going to have to track with me on this. This is a little history lesson. But used to, you didn't have phones. You had a phone. Usually in the kitchen, maybe the living room, one phone. It had cords like you couldn't carry it wherever you wanted. You could only go maybe so far. Some people had that long cord that was all kinked up but went all the way to the floor. You might make it all the way over to here, but that's how it worked. And so what would happen is if you wanted to talk to somebody, no matter how far away they were, you talked into it and the voice, the data, whatever it is, traveled an actual cable the entire way to wherever the people were that you were talking to. I mean, thousands of miles. So if I'm in North Carolina where I grew up and I'm making a phone call to call back over here to you guys in Oregon, that voice that I speak, though it was really fast, don't, it wasn't like we didn't have to sit around and wait for the mail. It, it actually worked. But when you would talk into it, am I being condescending to the young people a little bit? That's all right. They're used to it. So you talk into this and this voice would have to go like 3,000 miles. And listen, you could have perfect connections and perfect cables and perfect data transfers and all that stuff for all three or 2,999 miles. But when it gets to your house, if there's a split in your line in your house, it does not matter how amazing all the other cables are. It doesn't work. And the entire thing then is broken. And this is what Paul's saying here. This, this is not a percentage game. Because sometimes I think we look at the law as, 
okay, I'm going to do really good on enough and as much as I can so that the scales balance out. The good things I do will outweigh the bad things that I do, and therefore I will be justified. And Paul says there's no scales. This isn't a percentage game. If you think that you can earn favor before God by keeping the law, you need to know you have to keep them all, every bit of it. If you've broken one, you've broken them all. And so with that being the case, if we think that we're still good, if we think that we can actually pull all this off, I mean, just consider, let's, let's just think of the Ten Commandments in general, okay? And let's just start, the, the, the first one's the, or not the first one, but the easiest one in the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt not murder. So there's just, just a poll in here. Um, how many people in here have ever committed murder? Oh, there's one. We need to, security? <laughs> None of us, Right? Okay, we're doing pretty good, right? Everybody's justified before God so far. Let's go to the next one. Thou shalt not steal. Okay, a little harder. Anybody ever gone to the grocery store? This might not be another one of those back in the day things. Did you ever even like one of those little Brock's candies in the store when you walked in? Some of you are laughing because you did it. <laughs> or you bought grapes, you got that bag of grapes and you're walking through and you just, just one grape. Just one little, some of you are laughing, you know exactly what I'm talking about there. Okay, but you never stole from a store. You would never do something like that. What about a, at work, a pen? Ever take a pen from the office that wasn't yours? Oh, it's just a pen, but wasn't yours? Did you ask for permission? I mean, think of it this way. The banks know we steal pens because they chain them to the desk, <laughs> right? The banks, even unbelievers who run banks, understand the depravity of man and realize these pens, these things are valuable. People are gonna take them. We better chain these things down. It doesn't work. <laughs> they pop off a lot easier than you would think. And, and, but, you know, they, they've actually moved on from that now. Now you have that ridiculous stuff that you see nowadays. They've, they take pins, they, like, duct tape these giant flowers to them because they're like, all right, Jeff will steal a chain and he can try to look cool spinning that, but he's not going to go steal, like, a flower pin, right? <laughs> nope, doesn't work either. I like that. Actually, I don't. You want a pen? There you go. <laughs> I mean, look, but, but we have a post-it note, or maybe even something a little more vague. I mean, think of it along these terms. Have you ever done any personal business while the company was paying you to do theirs? Even just a minute, a phone call? I mean, we've all, right? Well, thou shalt not lie. Uh-oh. How about thou shalt not honor thy father and mother? Have you ever disrespected your mom and dad in any way? You're like, no, you just lied. You, now, now you failed the first one. <laughs> I mean, th th we're just talking the Ten Commandments here. What about have no other gods before me? Has there ever even been a time in your life where you desired something more than God and you put pursuit of that above pursuit of God? Of course we have. Of course we have. But wait, there's more, and it gets worse because that's just Ten Commandments. Now, then you get the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus comes in and you find out, oh wait, there's not just 10 laws, there's 613. There's national laws, there's ceremonial laws, there's cleanliness laws, there's laws governing festivals and feasts, there's all of these laws. So now, Paul, are you telling me we gotta keep 613 laws, all of them, all the time, perfectly? If we're gonna stand before God approved? Well, uh, yeah, but it's worse than that. Because then Jesus came. 
And Jesus comes and he stands there before them in the book of Matthew and, and, and he takes probably the two laws and all the Ten Commandments that are maybe the least commonly broken. Adultery and murder. Of all the ones he picks, he picks those two. Maybe because that's the ones that people go, well, I may have lied, but I didn't kill anybody. Balancing the scales. So he picks those two and he goes, okay, but I'm telling you this. If you've ever had lust in your heart, you're just as guilty. If you've ever had anger in your heart, you're just as guilty. And he blows the whole paradigm up. So it becomes absolutely impossible for any of us to be able to stand before God and say, we're justified, we feel good about things. Paul says, no, we are all cursed because we can't possibly, we don't even come close to this. So then you go, so thanks, God. (laughs) Thanks for just dropping the big bummer in our lap every time we open the Bible. Here's the law part that goes, remember, you're a loser, over and over. What's the point of that? Well, you have to remember a couple of things about the law that are really important. Some of this we've touched on, but you, you have to remember this, okay? The first thing about the law you have to remember is that the law isn't just a mere moral code. And you could read it that way. You could open Exodus, you could open Leviticus and read these things and go, this is teaching me what I have to do and what I don't have to do. But that's not really what it is. You know what the law is? It is a description and a revelation of the character of God. You can read Leviticus and Exodus a lot different when you see those things. It's God revealing to his people through the laws as he's saying, look, this is how you relate to me because this is who I am. I'm patient. I'm, I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to bail on you. I'm, I'm not a rapist that's going to force things upon you. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to dishonor you. And you see all of these things in the law that reveal God's character. So that's important to remember. And then the second thing is this, is that the law was never intended to save. The law was intended to show us our need to be saved, and in particular, to show us our need for a Savior. Now that's so important to understand. We've used the phrase diagnostic lately during this series, that the law is a diagnostic. It's like going to the doctor and getting an MRI because you you, something's wrong with your shoulder. So you go to the doctor and they scan you, and the MRI is a diagnostic that shows you where the pain is, where the brokenness is, what's wrong. But no matter how many times you run that MRI over that shoulder, over and over and over, it's never going to fix it. All it does is show you over and over and over what the problem is. And so think about these things two together. In the law, we have the revelation of God's perfect character, his holiness, his purity, all of these things. And then also in the law, we have the revelation of our absolute brokenness. And as Paul would say it, how far we fall short from the glory or the essence of who God is. And so this is what the law shows us. Here's who God is, and here's who we are. And we understand there's, we need this bridge Because we'll never make it there. We can't possibly pull these things off. And so we realize all this stuff and we look at the law and we go, man, we are toast. We have no hope whatsoever. And the law shows us that we need a savior. But, But the problem is, is so many times what we do is we see who God is and we see who we are. And instead of turning to that savior, we go, well, we got work to do. I better roll up my sleeves and start getting after it. And there are so many people in this room that are trying so hard day after day after day to live in such a way that you earn God's approval rather than realizing that he's already granted it to you and you are exhausted and you should be. Like you're constantly running on a treadmill that's going nowhere. There's no scales to balance out. There's nothing you can do to ever make up for the failures we have and there's no way you can say that I'm not gonna fail anymore from here. It's not gonna happen. 
But our human nature is to go back to, then I gotta get myself together, I gotta do this, and I gotta be better, I've gotta earn this favor with God, and it's never gonna happen. And then Paul says this, look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now again, Paul's quoting in each of these verses an Old Testament verse. So they who revere the law, Paul's like, all right, well, we're going to let the law speak for itself, so we'll let them hear from their own text about these things. And in this one, he quotes from the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Or literally, I love the way the original language literally says it, the one who by faith is made righteous shall live. The one who by faith is made righteous shall live. So Paul quotes from the Old Testament, says, listen, listen. No one's justified by the law, but the one who is made righteous by faith shall live. And then he goes in verse 12 and says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So here's what he says. Look, no one's justified by works, only by faith. But if you're trying to earn justification by law, then you're going to have to live under them. You're going to have to live by doing them. If you want to justify yourself by your works, if that's the way you want to live your life, then know it, you're, bringing, you're taking it all on. It's not scales. And this is what you're trying to do to live, and it's impossible. But even, even if it were, here's the problem. For a Jewish person who believes in all the Old Testament to say, I'm gonna earn favor with God by living according to the law, it's impossible because of the quote in Habakkuk. Because if, if you're living thinking that you're earning God's favor by the work that you do, then who is your trust in? Who's your faith in? It's in you, right? I'm going to put my hope, my trust, and my faith in me that I can be good enough to earn the favor of God. But the Old Testament has already ruled that out when in Habakkuk it says that the righteous will live by faith, by their faith in God, not their faith in self. So we already have this problem. So we have this issue. We can't earn favor with God. We, we can't make it to his character. We can't live to his standards. We're stuck down here. There's nothing we can do to make our way back up. What are we supposed to do? And what we find is that there is one who perfectly upheld the law, but also who came down here that we might put our faith in him to bridge this gap. And we call him who? Jesus. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this is the beauty of it. Christ fulfills the law perfectly, and we put our faith in him, which fulfills the law as well, according to Habakkuk. And it's Jesus' performance and ability to uphold all the laws that we put faith in, and we're covered, and it all was paid for on the cross when Jesus hung on the tree. Even in the Old Testament, when someone was hung on a tree, there were only specific instances where that actually took place. People that were hung on trees that you see even in the Old Testament scriptures. In Joshua, you see enemies of God are hung on trees. Traitors against God are hung on trees. Saul and the Gibeonites show us that those who um, are covenant breakers with God are hung upon trees. And then the Romans come into the picture and they take this hanging on trees thing to a whole nother level with crucifixion. And so they take these criminals, these people that are traitors, covenant breakers, whatever the case might be, and they hang them on these wooden crosses on these trees outside the city gates, naked in front of everyone, to punish them and as a deterrent for everyone else to say, look, you better keep the rules or this will happen to you. 
Sounds a little familiar when you look at it that way, doesn't it? And so Jesus Christ comes. He goes through this on our behalf, and he is hung on the tree in our behalf. But what happens sometimes is we look at that and go, yeah, we better keep the rules because of this. And that's not the intent. Our righteousness comes by substitute, is what he says. More on this in just a second. I want you to see how Paul finishes this thought. Look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that are non-Jewish, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, I want you to do something. Right here in this text where it says Gentiles, it's such a generic term. I mean, Gentiles, it's a giant term. It means everyone who's not Jewish. But, but make it personal. Put your name in there. Read that text with your name. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to Jeff Hensley so that Jeff might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see the gravity of that? The size of that statement? That Jesus Christ came, was our substitute, hung on the tree, became the curse in our place, so that Jeff might receive righteousness? That's an incredible thing. So the question then becomes, well, let me ask this. We're all church people, I'm pretty sure, or most anyway. I'm sure I know what the answer is gonna be. Do we believe this to be true? Give me an amen if you do. Okay, then let me ask you honestly, like, how do you live then? Like, do you live by this? Because let's face it, most of us or a lot of us in here just by statistics alone are church people, many of which who have grown up in the church. So we know those answers, and of course we're going to say that. I live by faith. I live by faith. But do you? Like, really? Every day? Is that our our inclination? Is that what we run to when things aren't going well? Do we actually do this? Does the weight of all of this fall on our shoulders? When we are obedient to God, what's our motivation in that? Are we doing it because we love Jesus so much we want to follow him and honor him and worship him? Or are we trying to earn something or make up for something that we already did? I think if we were to be honest, we would say our answers are all over the board, depending maybe even on the day, maybe even the hour. This is human nature. This is who we are. But I want you to consider something with me here today. This could be short. It depends on how long-winded I go here. I want you to consider something. Throughout the Bible, there's this phrase that comes up over and over and over, and it's in our text as well. It's this phrase, before me. This idea of before me. In verse 11, it says, now it is evident that no one is justified, what? Before God. So you'll see before me, before God. It's a phrase that comes up over and over throughout the scriptures. Um, There's a, a text where he says, I am the Lord thy God, walk before me. What does that mean? Well, to say walk before me, it, it, it's best understood by thinking of the opposite. Don't, don't be behind me, not, not behind my back. So the idea is this, when someone's behind our back, we can't see what they're doing, we can't see what's going on, it's easy to hide. Even if someone is doing something to wrong us that we're not aware of, that's what we call it. Man, they were doing this stuff behind my back. So when the scriptures say before me, when God says I want you to walk before me or stand before me, what it means is openness. Um, transparency, standing before me with all things in sight. God calls his people to stand before him, to walk before him in openness, in honesty, in integrity, but also without fear. Who, Who could do that? I mean, think about that. Could you? I mean, knowing us the way we know us, and I mean ourselves, 
our thoughts, our inclinations, the desires of our heart, could we stand before God completely open, completely vulnerable, nothing behind him, and not have any fear or trepidation whatsoever? That's, that's a terrifying thought to me. How do you do this? How, how could you possibly do this with nothing to worry about? And verse 10 says then that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, you're going to have to think with me for a second. Keep your hel helmets on, and I, I, I think we might get done early. Here's the thing. Why is it that he always refers to the law and curse? What is that all about? Well, here's something else you need to understand about the law that I think is really going to help some of you guys on this. The law was not, as I said before, intended to just be some moral code, but the law actually was relational. When the law was given, it's covenantal language that's meant to govern a relationship between God and God's people. And actually, this is familiar to us, even if we don't use those terms, because really every intimate and sincere relationship that we get into with anyone else is always governed by law, all of them. Let me give you an example. It's kind of silly, but let me give you an example. Let's say a man and a woman meet, and they start to like each other, and they date a few times, and they're like, man, I, I'm really into this guy. I'm really into this girl. Um, this could be serious. This might go somewhere. At some point, they have the talk, the relationship talk. And the idea, whether it happens in many talks along the way or one big sit down, let's talk through some things, the idea is this. You're coming to know one another, what the expectations are, what do we want out of this relationship, where are we going? So let's imagine that a man and a woman are in that situation, things are starting to get serious, this could maybe possibly be the one, and so they have this talk and the woman says to the guy, hey, um, I, I feel like this is getting really serious and I'm really, I'm kind of into you and, and, and um, I'm getting to know you more and more, but I think there's some things about me that you should really know before we go forward in this, um, three things in particular I want to share with you. Um, the first thing is this. It seems silly. Please don't laugh, but I, I hate smoking. I just, I just can't deal with it. My grandmother used to smoke when I was a kid, and it just, the smell, all of that stuff, and she died of cancer, so I have emotional issues with it, and there's all these problems. I just, I cannot deal with smoking. And the young man looks back at this woman. And he goes, oh, I'm so glad you shared your heart with me. I, I'm, I'm really glad to know that, and I understand what you're saying. That's what makes total sense. Um, here's something you should know about me. I'm going to smoke. Like, I'm, I smoke three, four packs a day on a good day. Um, I smoke in bed. I smoke at breakfast. I smoke everywhere. I smoke everywhere. I go. All those rules, I smoke everywhere, and I, I'm, I'm going to smoke. She goes, okay. Um, well, the next thing about me is it deals with money. Now, both, both of us make a really good income, and so should we come together and this become a marriage, we're going to have a really good income. But, but I, what I want you to know about me is that I don't desire to live according to my income. It's really important to me that I live well below my potential, if you will, because I just have this heart to be giving. I want to adopt kids. I want to support orphans overseas. I want to give to charities. I want to be able to support unwed mothers in town. I want to be able to give money to people who have need. That's just what I want to do. So I want to live as frugal as I can so that I can give as much away. That's just who I am, and it's important to me. He's like, Man, you're so gracious. You're so nice. I love that about you, but I'm so into luxury, it's not even funny. And so my, my desires in life are, I, I want to be able to have, like, I want to have multiple homes. I want a home in Cancun. I want a home in Colorado, a ski chalet. I want to, we're going to need cars in all of those, and you know how it is. You need a nice car. And so I'm going to do this and this and this and then, and this is kind of my plan. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live every bit of it, and my kids are going to have to earn their own because we're spending it all. <laughs> oh, okay, well, um, all right, the last thing 
is, this is really important to me. Um, I'm a believer big time in interracial harmony. I mean, my, my, my ancestors, my great-great-grandfather was involved even in civil rights works years ago. And so for me, what I really want to do is not just say that I believe in that, but I want to believe and live that. And so I actually want to live in a community that is racially mixed, even if that means I have to live in a place that might not be considered the better part of town. I want to be able to be a light, a vessel to that, and have relationships with people from different backgrounds. He's like, man, you are just an angel. But you can't trust those people. So I'm not living there. I'm a gated community guy. That's who I am. And this is what I want. Um, so anyway, while we're here, why don't I just go ahead, let's do this, let's get serious here. Um, <laughs> will you marry me? Now, what's she going to say? She's gonna, I, I hope she's going to say no. Because as they're laying out, look, these are the terms, these are the expectations, this is who I am and how we're going to relate to one another. Hopefully at a certain point you go, you know what, those are not covenantal terms that we can come to an agreement on. And as a result, if we were to try to push forward with a relationship based on this covenant, our relationship is cursed. It's going to end in separation. In fact, we're just going to separate now. Because we're in two completely different paths in life, two completely different desires and hearts. It's not going to work. And so the curse is the separation that happens. This is what this means. And listen, we have that in every relationship, or we should, because what do we call people who don't live with those sort of boundaries in place? We call them codependent. People who allow their own desires and dreams and boundaries and things like that to be continually stomped on and abused without ever allowing the separation that may need to happen for the health of that relationship. We would call that an unhealthy relationship, even codependent. Now, here's the problem. Relationships between you and I, they're optional. I mean, that young woman and that young man, they can talk those things through and they can decide, you know what? We're really not the same. We don't need to have a relationship with one another. Let's just go ahead and separate. I'm going to go this way. You can go the other way. And they can find someone else completely, and they never have to talk to each other again. Relationships are optional. But listen, our relationship with God, I don't care what you think or how big an atheist you might be, relationships with God are not optional, and God is not codependent. So think about that. Every single one of us one day will stand before God, before God in openness and honesty. And what we're going to find is that that covenant arrangement has been trampled on. We have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him. And because of that, we are all under the curse. The result of our sin is a separation from God. This is what it is. But the scriptures are so beautiful because it says that Christ, in this very text, it says Christ became the curse for us. So think about it. Jesus comes and he lives this perfect life and then he goes to the cross and all this sin is poured out on his shoulders. Now what was the curse for Jesus? The curse wasn't the nails. The curse wasn't the beatings, the nakedness, the shame. The curse was that at a certain point, Jesus turned to a place in his heart that had always been occupied by God, and it wasn't there anymore. That was the curse. I mean, think of it this way. Throughout the, all the Gospels, when Jesus speaks about God, he never calls him God. He always calls him what? Father. A deeply, intentionally relational term. That's how he always refers to him, except for one time. When he hangs on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That's the curse. Now, listen, it, it can be said that that level of curse or the rejection or pain that you have in a relationship is really sort of, um, how do you say that? It's dependent upon the intensity of the love in that relationship. So someone that you've never met before, if they cut you off in traffic and flip you the bird or whatever, that might make you mad or make you upset, but it's, it's not gonna wreck you. Or, or if someone, maybe someone you don't even know or just met, you call them and they don't call back, that might even sting for a moment, but that's not gonna wreck you. But if it's your father, I mean, counseling offices all over the world are filled with young men and women who have experienced rejection from their own fathers and are still trying to learn to work through the pain. I still do it with my own. So imagine Christ, who has been in perfect fellowship with God the Father, part of the Trinity, to be in that time because of our sin, be separated, that God would have to turn from his own son as the sin of the world was placed on his shoulders. That's the curse that God became for us. And it's important to remember that it was a substitute that was supposed to be us. Because we broke the covenant. And the gap results in separation. That's the curse. And Jesus became the curse for us. It's incredible. That's why it says, but, but let me take it a different way. There's more. I said before, but wait, there's more, but it was bad news, right? But wait, there's more. Now let me tell you the good news, the even better news. Paul says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. And then in verse 14, it says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us. He says it elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the what? Righteousness of God. So think about this. It's not just a substitution for our sin. And this is why I think I even said this last week. You ask a lot of people, hey, will you describe the gospel for me? And most people, unfortunately, will just say, man, the gospel is that Jesus died for my sin. That's true, but it's so much more than that, and it has to be, because think about this. Not only did Jesus go to the cross as our substitute and experience the wrath of God on our behalf and the rejection of God on our behalf, but it says that we receive now the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus' entire life, he was perfect. He was sinless. He who knew no sin, it says, became sin. So when Jesus was here, he wasn't just biding time until the crucifixion took place. It wasn't just like, yeah, I'm just sort of doing this thing and, and now it's game time. But he was on mission the whole time because he was fulfilling righteousness as a substitute for us. So think about this. The righteousness that we are given in Christ was earned by him. So this is what that means. So we know that the story, Jesus comes to the river, John the Baptist is there, he's baptizing. Jesus says, I'm here to be baptized. What does John the Baptist say? <laughs> me baptize you? Are you kidding me? You're Jesus. You're, I should be being baptized by you. But what was Jesus' answer? No, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Everything he was doing, all of that obedience along the way was necessary, not just to prove that he was God, but because that life that he lived perfectly is the righteousness that is now given to the people of God who follow him in faith. And so just let this sink for just a second. At that very baptism, Jesus gets baptized, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit comes down, and what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you know what that means? That means that if Christ is our substitute, 
If he didn't just take our sin, but he also lived perfectly that we might have his righteousness, you know what God then says to you? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Today, not later, not this future version of us that's going to be way better and way less sinful down the road. That thing doesn't exist until Jesus arrives. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ now, positionally. And God would say to you, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well, well pleased. That is unbelievable. Amen. Someone got it. Amen. That is an unbelievable truth. We don't feel that, though, very often. Or there's certainly days when we don't. But this is just the reality of it. You, when Jesus died, he didn't just take your sins away. But he granted you an unconditional love and approval that can never change if you're a follower of Jesus and have placed your faith in him unconditional. It never changes. It never goes away. And it means we can stand before God and be completely transparent. And in spite of our sin and failures, it's the righteousness of Christ that then robes us. And God looks at us right before him, says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I, I, I think that the tendency among Christians, most of us, is that we look at it like my sins have been paid for. Now I'm saved, but now, now I'm on again. And so now I've got to do this, 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 this to save or to continue or to, to make sure I don't lose the approval of God. And I need to make sure that God doesn't get frustrated with me and we still go back into that Santa Claus mode, be good for goodness sakes. And that's not the gospel. The gospel says you have been forgiven and that the love of God has been given to you. There's nothing you can do that will ruin or make him love you less and there's nothing that you can do to make him love you more. He's already given you, it says it right here on our banners, he has already demonstrated the size of his love for you in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's never a moment in our lives where we need to doubt the love of God. We're not back on in terms of gaining God's favor. And, and so think of it like this, Christians, especially those of you that have been around for a long time and have wrestled with this. Think about this. Jesus takes his disciples. He sends them out into the world, and he says, hey, go out two by two. You're going to do ministry in my name. You're going to do all this stuff. And so the disciples go off, and they're casting out demons, and they're healing the sick, and there's miracles taking place. And the guys come back to Jesus at the end of that time, and they are pumped up, Right? Like, they're excited, like, Jesus, you will not believe the day we had. We nailed it, man. We just, killer day of ministry. We were casting out demons, and we were doing all this stuff. Even the demons listened to our name, and what did Jesus say? Hey, don't get all worked up because you had a good day. Don't get all excited because you did these works. That's not what you rejoice in. Rejoice, what does he say? That your names are written in heaven. This is what he's saying. Paul, Peter, in that case, let's talk about Peter. Peter, don't get all caught up in the fact that you went out and did an amazing day of ministry in my name and all this stuff happened. Don't, don't look at your identity in that. Don't come to me thinking I'm going to be proud of you because of that and place your self-worth in that because, Peter, look, today was a good day, but I'm guaranteeing you there's a bad day coming. There's a day coming when you're going to deny me over and over. And if your identity is in all the things that you do, it's going to crush you, and it nearly did, didn't it? Don't rejoice in your works, rejoice in your status. That's what we rejoice in. 
And, and I think sometimes we try to identify ourselves by the works over and over and over. And we think, man, I nailed it today. God loves me. And God would still say to us, don't rejoice in the fact that you had a good day. There's a bad day coming too. Rejoice in the fact that I have granted you the identity of being a child of God. Not because of you, but because of me. That's the gospel. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because of Christ, we can stand before God with no fear. Oh, we'll wrestle with it because our flesh is weak. But when we remind ourselves of the reality of that gospel, we realize we can literally stand before God in spite of all of our failures and we don't have to be afraid or worry if he loves us or he's gonna reject us because we are covered because of the son, Jesus Christ, and his obedience. And that's why Jesus said to a really religious, legalistic, do your works congregation or, or community of people, he said, hey, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the gospel. And so some of you, get off the treadmill. Like, get off the treadmill and bask in the wonder of the gospel. Maybe some of us need to spend a season just revisiting and relearning and rereading over and over how good God is and how gracious he's been to you. Reveling in his forgiveness, not your performance. Reveling in his kindness, not your failures or successes. And rejoice in our status. That if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, he says, you are forgiven, I love you, I approve of you. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Amen? Will you guys stand and bow your heads with me as Sam comes up here? I'm going to ask you guys to all bow your heads, close your eyes. And before we go, I want to address two different kinds of people that are in this room. The, the first person is the one who has never, ever, ever put their faith in Jesus at all. Whether it's simply, I don't believe in him, or whether you grew up knowing about him your whole life, but you never trusted him, you always trusted your works, you always trusted yourself. Hey, could you leave those back lights on there, guys? Those are perfect, just as it is. I gotta be able to see. But if you're here and you have never come to that place where you've put your faith in Jesus, especially if you're trying to earn some sort of approval or, or fooling yourself into thinking that you're a good enough guy to earn favor with God, I'm here to tell you it's not going to work. Unless you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are under a curse, is what the scriptures say but there is forgiveness and grace unending available to you. And so if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I wanna give you opportunity to do that right now. And, and today we'll do this in the form of just simply raising a hand so that we can pray for you. This doesn't mean that you're now signed up for the kids wing or any of those kind of things. This is just your declaration here in this room that says, I need forgiveness. I need Jesus. I have so much stuff on my record. There's no way I can outlive the things that are going on, and I'm killing myself trying to. I need peace. I need forgiveness, and I don't want to go to hell. I was at this memorial service for David Sprunger just yesterday, and in the videos that they showed of him, he said over and over, don't go to hell. Go to heaven. Jesus loves you. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus and you want to, will you just stick a hand up nice and high so I could pray for you? Is there anyone? 
just stick your hand up nice and high, especially if you're in the back. I can't see back there. All right, the second person that I want to talk to in here is the Christian. The one who has, but the one who wrestles with guilt and shame and condemnation, constantly feeling like every time you mess up, you've got to go back and fix it somehow, otherwise, otherwise God is frustrated with you. And, and maybe you're like me. Maybe you interpret that because of your own relationship with your own father. And you remember what it's like to fail and have your father get frustrated with you or angry with you. And so you start to believe that that's how God feels about you. But I'm telling you right now, your father may have been the greatest father in the world, but he is a sinful fallen man and did not nail that perfectly all the time. But there is a God who does. And he loves you. And his grace is unending. His mercies are new every morning. And his love for you is stable and consistent and never changes. But I just want to pray, and I'm raising my own hand too because I do this all the time. But if you're here as a Christian and that's a, you, you know you're on the treadmill, that that's your inclination to fall back in trying to earn God's favor, and you want prayer this morning with me, will you just stick your hand up nice and high? Just leave it up and let's pray. God, we're so thankful for the reminder of the grace in your scriptures. God, in our own sinfulness, we continue to fall back into this performance-driven Christianity, Lord. And the, the very nature of the gospel, the foundation of the church is that you have done the work for us and that you love us and you have forgiven us. And God, I know that your desire is that people would be set free. And so, Lord, this morning we are begging you that you will set people free from religion, from the burden of performance, and Lord, allow them to bask in the glory and freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, help us to learn how to teach the gospel to ourselves over and over so that when Satan rises up to condemn, we will recognize that voice for what it is and return to the reality of you, that we will run to your arms, Jesus. I pray, God, for every hand that is raised, Lord, may they leave this place with chains of legalism broken, and may they walk out of here as if they're walking on clouds knowing that they have your complete and total approval because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, I also pray this. Every hand raised right now is gonna blow it probably today. And so may this gospel be a remembrance in their ear even then. May your spirit remind us of these truths after those failures, and may we not allow Satan to bind us once more to this sinful body. God, we are so thankful for you. We love you. Lord, even now, Lord, as we sing this song, may you receive this sacrifice of, play, of praise, not because we're trying to make you think we're serious about our faith, but because we're so gracious at how good you have done. May your spirit even infuse our worship in this one psalm, and may we sing out in gratitude to the one who has set us free. Let's sing.